So I'm excited about spending time with Gina and seeing things I've never seen before and having experiences I've never had before and, uh, and going through this itinerary that's this thick, no kidding, that Gina has printed out because she's a planner, and I'm very appreciative. I'm, I'm looking forward to all that, but I'm also looking forward to just catching my breath, getting the bigger picture, and seeing with a little bit more clarity maybe what is it that God's got in store for us next. Now, I don't know all of the specific details, but I thought before I left to go on vacation for a couple of weeks, I'd go ahead and lay out for you with some specificity what I already know God has in store for us. And I'm not prophetic in terms of forth-telling anything. It's just that lately I've, I've kind of taken very seriously the words of a really wise person, someone I've grown to love and respect, and his name is Agur, and he lived about 2,600 years ago. Here's what Agur says of himself. This is over in Proverbs chapter 30. He says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. But he's not a woman. Uh, he says, I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom. He says, I just, I don't know anything. So if you were excited to come this morning to listen to a stupid man preach, you came on the right Sunday. And some of you are saying, well, it's kind of like every Sunday, Ernest. Thank you very much. Uh, but he's, he's, I'm just, I'm ignorant. And I don't know what it is about that, but it's kind of endearing, you know, a little self-deprecation. He's sort of like Socrates. I know that I don't know, but I at least know that somebody who does know, and it's God. But I'm not God, so I don't know. And we like that. And he's not terribly religious because he's not a Jew. He's not a Christian, obviously. He's Old Testament, but he's not even a Jew. It's just that Agur said some really remarkable things, so remarkable, so standout-ish, that somehow his wisdom, or at least some of his sayings, made it into the Holy Scriptures, which is really interesting. And I'm glad the sayings made it in there because a little bit later in chapter 30, Agur gives some direction to you and me concerning how we need to live our lives, encouraging us to model our lives after four crawling things. He talks about the ant and the rock badger and the locust and the lizard. And although he doesn't say it, these are not uh, terribly attractive creatures because you, if you have ants around your house, it's not because you want them there. It's because you haven't called the exterminator. And I didn't see anybody this week walking their rock badger or coney. And uh, if you see, I don't know, a grasshopper or a lizard, once you get over being startled, you kind of want to stomp on it. And most of the time when we model, we don't want to model down, we model up. We want to follow in the footsteps of the people who went before and forged the path, the big trailblazers who left their mark on history and all the rest. We don't want to model down. But here he is, this man, who says, if you follow in the footsteps of these four creatures, you will have wisdom for the living of your days. Would you mind bringing me that coffee over there? Not that I'm about to fall asleep, um, but I've uh, got some, some, something stuck in my throat this morning. And I, I want to crawl forward into a great life, and I want that for you, and I want that for me, and I want that for our church, and I want that not just for the year ahead, but, but really for all of our days. And so if you're interested in that, and if you're interested in listening to a stupid man talk about a man who's too stupid to be a man, talk about following in the footsteps of things that creep on the earth, yay, glad you're here. This is also why we have deacons to guard the exits, so you can't run away. So with that, let's go ahead and stand. Out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, 
This is uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 through 28. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard can take you, take in, you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Uh, may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now we're going to look at the wisdom of following in the footsteps of these creatures. And along the way, I'm going to try to make some uh, very concrete, take, take it home with you sort of statements where you can understand where I'm hoping and where I feel like the Lord is actually leading us together as a congregation in the year ahead. Uh, first of all, he says, consider the ant. The ant isn't very strong, and yet it stores up its food in the summer. And some of you are thinking, wait a second. I thought ants were strong. Well, yeah, they're strong, but it's not pound for, for pound strong. They're milligram for milligram strong. I mean, the, the point is, they're itty-bitty. Your average work ant is around two, two and a half milligrams. And so, you know how many ants it takes for an ounce? Ten, about 10,000. The point is, these things are itty-bitty. And they've got itty-bitty bodies and itty-bitty ant brains, and yet in, in spite of all this, they store up food in the summer. So here's the thing. The ant tells us what time it is in life. It reminds us to know what time it is in life. The ant uses the past to... It draws from the past. draws from its instincts of the past to use the present to get ready for the future. And that's a good thing. They're mono, they're, they're multi-temporal beings. In other words, as human beings, we tend to be monotemporal. We live in one time or another or another. I don't know why it is, but some people live in the past, some people live in the present, some people seem to live in the future. The ant has all times in mind at all times. I don't know about you, but it seems like most of the people I run into kind of live in the past. There's a tendency for some people to drive through life looking in the rearview mirror. They're the kind of people that go on vacation and they take their camera and their video camera and multiple lenses and the tripod. And it's not that they don't enjoy the vacation. It's just that they're looking through their vacation through the lens of looking back on their life because they think that from here on out, it's going to be kind of downhill, kind of like my vacation to Europe. Uh, after that, it's kind of all over. Uh, and so we're going to be hopefully living in the moment. But a lot of times people will live in the moment as if it's already passed. The problem with that, the problem is if you live in the past, the question is, are you doing anything useful in the here and now. Then there are people who live only in the present. They're not thinking about the past. They're not living for tomorrow, and tomorrow never comes. And then there's some people who just live for tomorrow. They sing with Dorothy somewhere over the rainbow. They're kind of the dreamers. They're the people who are thinking, one day I'm going to get out of high school, and when I graduate from high school, everything's going to be great. Or they think, one day I'm going to finish college, and I'm going to have a career, and then I can be a real contributor to the kingdom. I want to have a career. Or then, uh, you know, maybe I'm thinking if I just get married, then everything's going to settle down. Or one day we're going to have children, and when we have children, everything's going to come together and life's going to be wonderful. And then you start thinking, well, one day when the children leave the home, then everything's going to get wonderful. Or you think one day when my children have children, then it's going to be great. Now then you're thinking, well, one day when I don't have a career anymore, then it's going to be wonderful. And for some of us who are believers, we think, well, one day I'm going to die, praise God, and everything's going to be wonderful because I'm going to be in heaven. Always living for tomorrow, never using the present to prepare for tomorrow. The ant's not like that. The, anti, the ant is multi-temporal. 
drawing from the past, using the present to prepare for the future. And this is wise because winter always comes. How does this apply? The most obvious thing that I have in mind is like with regards to youth, or really not just youth, any of us, we need to be becoming more familiar with the words and the works of God from the past because the reality is, as a believer, my past began before I was born. As a believer, I'm in this great history of God, and so I'm using the words and the works of God from the past to inform my presence so that I can prepare for the future because the reality is, in the future, there's going to be winters. It's not going to be all bad. I don't know that my life's going to be downhill from here on out, but here's the truth about you and the truth about me. There are going to be winters in your life that are going to be very personal. Some of you, unfortunately, you're going to be diagnosed with something that you never anticipated. You're going to get that disease that you thought you would never get. Or you're going to be in that accident that you didn't see coming. Or someone is going to leave you and you're going to go through some heartbreak, either through divorce or through separation or through death. Some of you are going to be disappointed because you got into a job or a situation and you didn't know that it was like you thought it was because it got misrepresented and you get in there and all of a sudden you find out this is not all that it was cracked up to be. Some of you, you're going to face a winter because you thought you were up to it and whatever it is, you found out you are not up to it. Some of you, you're going to get sued and you're not going to be able to defend yourself. Some of you are going to be attacked mercilessly and you're not going to be in a position to give any defense to yourself whatsoever. There is going to be a winter coming. In fact, it's not just one winter. There are multiple winters in life. And when you're in the midst of that winter situation, if you don't have resources stored up in advance, you're not going to survive it. While the sun is still shining, you need to make preparations for what is yet to come. And that largely involves, but doesn't only involve, simply being in the Word and getting to know Christ. Because those winters come in your life. As a nation, I think maybe we're entering into winter. I don't know this to be the case, but I do know we are not living in the year 2000 anymore. There was a time in our history, which most of us still remember... When we kind of thought, because there are oceans on both sides of our land, we were sort of insulated from radical terror and evil. We know that's not the case anymore. I think you'd have to be blind to think, well, all of our troubles are somehow in the past and well behind us. We kind of sense that there is, I don't know, a a, a freeze that's coming over the terrain, that you can almost sense the snow and the ice creeping across the land. And certainly, when you think about the, the situations in our lives concerning marriages, concerning families, concerning relationships, we have people with broken lives, with broken hearts, not just broken bodies, but depleted souls. And people are growing up in these kind of contexts, and I think we're kind of entering into a winter of discontent. And when that winter comes for you or when that winter comes for others around you, if you're going to stand or give something that is substantial that's going to stand up to those freezing winter moments, you'd better have stored up something. You better prepare. As my friend Logan commonly says, I've got to make hay while the sun's still shining because it's not always going to be shining on you. So the ant prepares. It doesn't always enjoy itself, you know. It's just the nature of getting prepared. You, you work a lot. Ants go to picnics, but they don't necessarily enjoy them. You're drinking your tea, sipping your lemonade, and they're working, taking away one granule of sugar after another after another. And if you're not careful, they'll carry off your cookie and all your potato chips because they work. 
the ant reminds us what time it is in life. And if you, if you have the brain of an ant, you're going to remember what time it is in life. And, and you're going to make hay while the sun is still shining. You're going to make the most of those sunny days to prepare for what is yet to come. There's a second thing. Agar talks about the ant, but he also talks about the, the rock badger. The rock badger, they're, they're not a mighty people, but they live in the, in the rocks. They make their homes in the cliffs or in the crevices, in the crags. Rock badgers remind us of where our security lies. Uh, a rock badger, I think we've got a picture of it. That, that's a rock badger. It's like a glorified squirrel without a tail. Uh, they look like the rock that they're on. If they're sunning on the rock, you can hardly see them, but there are... There are predators out there that can see the rock badger, and when the predator comes, the rock badger simply burrows into the rock. They go into the crags and into the crevices. And so if that predator, like a vulture or an eagle or whatever, wants to take the rock badger out, it's got to tear down the mountain in order to get to it. Now, I don't have any doubt that the person who wrote Proverbs here is referencing God because in the Psalms, the book right before Proverbs you got multiple references to God being our rock. And Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The rock badger reminds us, we better stick to God. We better stick to the Lord because he's our security. Now, rock badgers, here's the thing with rock badgers. Rock badgers love the rock. And no doubt they like talking about the rock. And so if you ever go to a rock badger convention, you'll see that these conies, these hyraxes, these rock badgers... They take these different positions. They write their little papers because, you know, conventions are academic. And some of these rock badgers like to write papers about how high the rock is. These are the high rock conies. And they, there are these others that just kind of like to major on the breadth of the rock. They talk about the rock being as broad and as wide as the Rocky Mountains. And these are the wide rock conies. And the wide rock conies and the high rock conies, they read their papers and they go back and forth. And it's an, it's an amazing display of intellectual capacity and disagreement over the rock. And some of the conies, they get tired of all this and they just kind of back off and say, let's just get real practical. Let's, let's talk about how to make the rock more cony friendly so more conies will come to our rock. But here's the thing about rock badger conventions. If they're held out in the prairie... They all die. No matter what their position papers may say, they can't find security in their position on the rock. It's the rock that gives them their security. Now, I'm not implying that theology is not important, but theology is like the road sign that points to the city, okay? There's a difference, and I pity the fool who can't tell the difference between the sign and the city. Our position on the rock isn't going to save us or make us secure. It's the rock itself. The rock badgers know this. Now, I'm not making fun of rock badger conventions, okay? Because if you ever go to one, you're going to love it. You'll know the songs, Rock of Ages, you know, clef for, you know, clef for me, let, let me hide myself in the, you know, uh, it's, it's great. But the rock badgers simply remind us, if you've got the mind of a rock badger, you're going to know where security is, and you're going to cling, and you're going to cling tightly to the rock. It's personal. Agar goes on and gives us another piece of really interesting wisdom. He talks about the locusts. Now, locusts are real small and um, by itself, they're not going to threaten you or anything like this. But when the locusts are in hordes, when they're all together, 
tremendous, tremendous power. Uh, some of you, you know your history of America. You might remember that locusts were a real problem in the Plain States from the 1850s, about the 1880s. How many of y'all ever read Little House in the Prairie or saw some of that stuff? You know, the locusts sweeping over and eating everything. That, that happened. In fact, in 1875, at the height of the locust infestations in America, at one point, 198,000 square miles were covered in about 12.5 trillion locusts. Devastated the land within a matter of hours. All of Kansas and Nebraska and western Missouri and, and Iowa and Minnesota. You know how big 198,000 square miles is? That's three times the size of Florida. That's bigger than the state of California. Covered by the ground at one time by these locusts. Locusts have shaken nations to their foundations. Locusts have brought down kingdoms. One locust by itself, eh, whatever. A horde of locusts, that's another story. You by yourself, me by myself, well, okay, you're gray and I'm gray, whatever. But together, tremendous, tremendous strength. The imagery here obviously is being applied to the people of God. People of the covenant in the Old Testament, people of the church in the New Testament, and it simply reminds you and me of something we ought to already know, and that is my faith as a believer in Christ is incredibly personal, but it's not individual. The Bible teaches nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. In fact, if you go through the Bible and you look at the word saint, which is commonly applied to Christians, holy ones, hagios, it's always in the New Testament in the plural. God in the Bible teaches nothing of the individual separated Christian. Even Jesus Christ he gets around himself all of these disciples, 12 disciples. He surrounds himself with these female followers who are supportive of his ministry financially and otherwise. And when he sends out the disciples, they go out two by two. Why? Because there's strength in numbers. I know that for me, when I have other people who have courage, their courage becomes my courage. And when I'm alone, sometimes the temptations may seem overwhelming. But with, with other people around me, what might have been overwhelming is no longer even an issue. There is strength in numbers. The Apostle Paul is no different. For some reason, I kind of grew up thinking that the Apostle Paul was like amazing and he's all by himself and he's doing these tremendous things and he's kind of the lone ranger. That's not true. That's why when you get over to the book of Romans, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul mentions person after person after person after person who's poured into his life and has made his ministry what it was. And we know just by going through the book of Acts, there's Priscilla and Aquila and there's Timothy and there's Titus and there's, there's Silas and there's... Barnabas and there's John Mark and there's Trophimus and Tychius and Aristarchus and Gaius and of course there's Dr. Luke. How many of y'all saw that movie Apostle Paul or, or Paul, uh, uh, you know, Apostle of Christ? That happened, okay? It might not have happened exactly like it was portrayed in the movie, but there's Paul in the dungeon toward the end of his life in Rome and Dr. Luke is there. It says so in Second Tim, or Second Timothy chapter 4. He's saying, only Luke is with me. And here's Paul at the end of his life, you know, his hair's falling out and his body's aching with pain because of all the beatings and the stonings and he was left for dead and all the rest. But there's Dr. Luke. And in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul writes, he writes to Timothy and says, please, Timothy, get, do your best to come before winter. Dr. Luke is here, but only Luke is here. Oh, and bring John Mark when you're coming. Why? Why is he interested in all this? Because even for Paul, who is strong in the Lord, he wants as many people around him as he possibly can have because there is 
strength in the number of other believers. God never intended for you and he never intended for me to walk alone. In fact, it's not just a matter of me having personal strength. It's a matter of you and me together doing what it is that God has called us to do. And what has he called us to do to make a difference and to take on and overcome the challenges of our world. But you're not going to do that with one little grasshopper. God's called us to be like a horde of locusts. If you've got the mind of a locust, you know where your strength lies and you will stick together with other people. Well, there's one more thing. He talks about the ant, he talks about the rock bat, he talks about the locust, and then, of course, he talks about the lizard. The lizard is found in king palaces. Okay, what's that all about? It's incongruity. It's the image or the emblem of absurdity. It's ridiculous. The other day I was in my garage, it was about three weeks ago, I was in the garage moving some stuff around, and a lizard jumps out. And immediately I'm, I'm thinking, what do I do? And I, and I know, well, one thing I don't do is I don't tell Gina. And the other thing I'm thinking is I'm not going to chase this thing down because even though I'm as quick as I used to be, I'm not going to chase that thing down because, hey, they live, in, they live in king's palaces. One can hang out in my garage. It's no big deal. But it's, in, it's incongruous. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's kind of like Groucho Marx saying, you know, the other day I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How it got into my pajamas, I'll never know. You're waiting for the punchline. The king woke up, saw a lizard in his palace, and you're waiting for the punchline, and that is the punchline. It's ridiculous. It doesn't fit. It's absurd. It's like my son telling his roommate's dad, hey, remember that guy who did the donuts, who went to the, see the dean of men a couple of times, who ran away from the cops and got away? Yeah, that's my dad, and he's the pastor of a downtown Baptist church. It doesn't fit. It's a lizard in a palace. Now, there's things about God's grace that just seem to be absurd, ridiculous. You didn't see it coming. It doesn't seem to fit. If you want to be great, you've got to be the least of these. If you want to be, uh, if you want to be a leader, you need to be a servant. If you want to be the first, you've got to be the last. If you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. If you want to wear a crown, carry a cross. It doesn't seem to fit. But the most absurd thing of all, the most ridiculous thing of all, is that God would, would actually use people like you and me in his service. And when it dawns on you, when it hits you, that you're just a lizard in his palace, it ought to radically humble you and actually kind of fill you with joy. Because the fact that the lizard is allowed to live in the king's palace is itself an act of grace. But I know the reality is God's not, not, he's not just allowing me to stay and dwell in his presence. He brought me in by his son's broken body and shed blood. I've got gifts and you've got gifts and the whole thing of grace is a gift. And if at any time you start thinking of yourself as a king or a queen in the palace, you have forgotten yourself. You've forgotten his radical, absurd grace. You're just a lizard. And I don't mean that to be demeaning. It ought to actually fill your life with joy and humility and service. I was... uh, reading something from Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Washington, D.C. And as you might expect, there were lots of interesting people from the military and uh, government public service that were part of this church, kind of an interesting mix of people. He had this breakfast for fathers and sons on Thursday mornings, and it was done by a quarter till eight 
after the breakfast was over, he, Howard Hendricks had stopped speaking and everybody was leaving, he noticed a senator, Senator Mark Hatfield. And uh, Senator Mark Hatfield was a Republican from Oregon, served in the Senate for 30 years, chaired one of the major committees, just a very influential senator while he was serving. And he saw Senator Hatfield stacking chairs and picking up napkins. And Howard Hendricks remarked, you don't stack chairs and pick up napkins if you are impressed by the fact that you're a U.S. senator or if you're impressed over the notion that you are God's greatest gift to your local church. But you will stack chairs and you will pick up napkins when you are impressed by the absurdity of the grace of God that he would allow a lizard like you to serve in his palace. If you've got the mind of a lizard, you are blown away at the absurd, ridiculous grace of God, and you will serve with with incredible joy. So the ant reminds us of what time it is in life. The rock badger reminds us of where our security lies. The locust reminds us of where our strength is. And then, of course, the lizard reminds us of the absurd, ridiculous grace of God that actually transforms our lives. So where are we going to be the next year? I don't know all the specifics. I doubt when I come back from vacation I'll know all the specifics. But here's what I'm already committed to. And as for my, my part, here's where we're going. Like the ant, we're going to make hay while the sun is still shining. And we're going to make the most of our opportunities to let more and more people know about the incredible grace of God that they need. Because winter's coming. We are going to stick really tightly to Jesus Christ. We're going to stick tightly to the rock because Jesus Christ came so that we could have a, a, a something solid to hold on to so that we could, in fact, cling to God. That's why he came, because he knew that we needed him and there was no way that we could cling to God except for God clinging to us over his incredible grace displayed on the cross. We're going to stick together. Because we do celebrate communion, and communion is a reminder that the whole reason that God came was to bring us into union with him and communion with one another, that we would be made one. And the final thing that we're going to do in the year to come is really simple. As we remember him, as often as we remember him, and we do this every Sunday, we are going to be blown away by the grace of God, and we are going to consider it a privilege to be servants in his household. And if you have the, the mind of an ant or the mind of a rock badger and a locust and a lizard, you're going to be really happy about where God has brought you and excited about what is still in store for you. I don't know all the specifics, but I know to what I'm committed and what I'm committed to that Agra talks about finds its perfect expression in the body that was broken and the blood that was shed and what it is that we are remembering today. So let's remember and let's remember well and let's get geared up for the rest of our summer and the year to come. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. We thank you for the message of the cross. And we thank you for Agar, somebody who may have considered himself too stupid to be a man. 
someone who may have considered himself uh, just unworthy of giving wisdom, and yet there is incredible wisdom that comes to us in your word, and I'm glad that these sayings were included in Scripture. And I'm also glad that actually the cross bears out the truth of these things. So, Father, help us to, to not just sit back as we remember, but as we remember, thinking about the importance of the cross, may we be committed wholeheartedly without reservation while the sun is still shining to bring forth this message to other people because winter comes and it comes again and it comes again not just for us but for others and to go through this life and to go through winters without the resource of the gospel i think is impossible and lord help us above all else to just cling to you in a personal way but help us not to cling to you individually but corporately together that we could take on the challenges of this world And may we consider it a joy and a privilege to be servants of the king in your household, advancing your kingdom. May we be blown away by your graciousness and serve not just with energy, but with joy and with humility. Lord, in this time of remembrance, may we be blown away and transformed by your grace in a way that is appropriate and pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.